0: Welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In each episode of this podcast, I look at a small slice of American writing using the Library of America as my source material. And this episode, I am jumping right in to uh, an author I haven't read before, uh, an author I, I've meant to read for a number of years, um, but one I just hadn't gotten around to yet. Um, this is the first time in this podcast that I've, I'm looking at a writer I hadn't read before. I would say Alcott. I, like I knew of Little Women. I probably read parts of it when I was y- younger. But with the, I think that's the only one that I would say I hadn't read before. And in fact, I've actually read the Library of America volumes of a lot of these books prior to this. Uh, the Du Bois book, I hadn't read before. But most of the stuff I read, I was familiar with Du Bois, and like I've read Souls of Black Folk. So, you know, there there's individual works I may hadn't read before, but you know, I've been familiar with these authors. Willa Cather. A writer i'm really not that familiar with you know i just know her she's one of the big ones she's one of the the greats of of american writer writing she's certainly a a significant part of the canon of american writing and that's one thing that's kept me from looking at her um it's i've been meaning to look at a a woman writer though and i I know i did do alcott i did one volume of alcott's a number of months ago and then i went on and did my series on on black writers and that took a a few months and i have been meaning to do a more significant series on on a woman writer and i was debating which one to do and you know top on my list would have been zora neale hurston but i had been doing um, black writers for a while so i set aside zora neale hurston then i considered carson mccullers and flannery o'connor and those were authors i looked at before and i just bought all these new library of america volumes I, I bought i guess around 30 you know six seven months ago so i decided let's let's look at one of the new writers i had which which really left me with just edith wharton and willa cather as, as the choices so i do have two of cather's volumes uh the first two that were published by Library of america in that first set of 50 or so um and that, those cover, like, most of her novels. I, I think the third volume was published a little bit later in the series run, and it covers maybe some of her middle novels and some, maybe some of her poetry and some other, maybe some essays or something. So um, this first volume of Willa Cather's work is really her F- Plains Trilogy novels, uh, Old Pioneers, uh, Song of the Lark, Um my Aunt Antonia, and then one of ours, which is her World War I novel, and then we have her, the stories collected in the Troll Garden, and that's what we'll be looking at in this episode, the stories in the Troll Garden, um, but the rest are novels, so, so we'll be focusing on Willa Cather's novels. Anyways, I'm kind of scared, to be honest, uh, about how to approach her and how to talk about her, because, you know, I, I, I have been reading ahead, so I'm well into Song of the Lark, and it's, it's kind of all downhill after you get through the Troll Gardens from my point of view. Once, you get in, once I got into settings and themes that I was more familiar with, it got easier. The Troll Gardens was a very, very difficult text. And I wonder if maybe in the past, I I, I remember picking up Willow Cather and not getting very far in with her. Maybe I was always scared off by, by the Troll Gardens. Once she finds that kind of Midwest voice with with um, Old Pioneers, it's completely different. I mean, Old Pioneers is great and, and Song of the Larks is wonderful. And I'm only like maybe 50, 60 pages into Song of Lark, and it's just so beautiful and wonderful. And I just found Troll Gardens such a a chore to get through. And I don't know, I guess everyone has different tastes and and they like different things. But, you know, I just felt in the Troll Gardens, which is a collection of seven short stories, three of which were previously published, but four were published for when, when when she published the Troll Gardens in 1905 that, although interesting, I, I found them just very difficult and, and I didn't really know what to say about a lot of them. I do think they have interesting things to say though. I, I think they have a lot to do with this, like the big town, old town dynamic. And it's something I see a lot in Song of the Lark, less so in old pioneers, but it, you know, you, it, you get the feeling that it's there. And that is in the early 20th century, as America became more of an urban culture, the, you know, that's that's, I think, the origin of flyover country, although they didn't have airplanes um, yet. But this uh, concept of flyover country, this this resentment that built up over this idea that America is being defined by by the cities and American progress is defined as something that's urban and the countryside, the rural areas get sort of left behind. And, and in a way, my podcast has has reinforced this. Have I looked at any rural writers? like a Steinbeck, right. And, you know, that's a that's a California writer. I've looked at New York writers, several California writers. I've looked at Southern writers because I've been so interested in African-American writing. But a lot of them were people who kind of were of the city, right? They left the South. I don't think I've looked at a straight up pure Southern writer in this entire series. I've been doing this for, for well over a year. So... Willa Cather allows me, and this is one reason I chose to do her, is it allows me to kind of go into a new region of, of American writing, and that's the Midwest. But you can tell when when you read in the Troll Gardens that somehow she's not fully comfortable really embracing her kind of Midwest voice. And instead, she's still kind of playing, having one foot in the city, one uh, one foot in urban areas. But I, I do get the feeling in a lot of her work, and it's a theme I, I think I'll come back to a lot, is this anxiety over over you know, the, being part of the frontier in a nation that the, the the new frontier is really the city. And I think a lot of the 1920s had this, like the rise of fundamentalism, the rise of the kind of, well, let's just say social movements that, that prioritized the rule in the South over things that they've seen happening in urban areas. Um, I'll talk about that more directly. I don't think Will Cather is part of this kind of reactionary pull, but I, I think by finding a voice for the countryside she's running counter to a lot of the themes in in american writing at the turn of the century which were much more focusing on the changes in in urban urban spaces so it's one thing i kind of like about her is she really gives places like nebraska you know places like colorado you know minnesota a voice and she's giving this voice to groups that i haven't read much of i mean i'm sure there are whole you know the literature of these people uh but like swedish immigrants norwegian immigrants bohemian immigrants these are voices i haven't come across and in, in my reading of american writing and that's one reason i appreciate what Willa cather's willow cather did in her her career nevertheless i found the troll gardens the first book we're going to look at in this series a little bit difficult so i'm going to be a bit kind of sketchy as I approached this, mostly because I don't really know what to say about a lot of these works, and they didn't really move me the way a lot of work, other works do, and, and, you know, I kind of despaired, because I actually recorded that my next series is going to be Willa Cather, and I had tried other things. I was reading a bit of Eugene O'Neill. Um, I, I went back to Flannery O'Connor and, and checked her out again, and I said, no, like, I, I wanted to do something new. So I went to, I picked up the book, but I, I recorded in my last episode on the James Will johnson series that my next series is going to be Will Cather. And I thought, well, you know, unless I go back and edit that out, you know, I'm, uh, you know, I really can't change it. So I'm kind of committed. But the Troll Gardens was so difficult for me. I kind of was frustrated. But as soon as I got into the Old Pioneers and I got into the Plains trilogy, and now that I'm Song of Lark, i was like, I can't put her, put her down. So that's the good news. The good news is, you know, whatever frustration I have, at this moment uh passes way quickly and i i think it has a lot to do with her kind of going full into what nebraska was about or what colorado's about or what these immigrant communities in these in these prairie states what what life was like and it's there you just feel like one thing these troll garden stories are kind of claustrophobic we have characters who are often very resentful very bitter or there's a lot, a lot of nastiness to it and when she when in the Plains trilogy the characters are breathing so much more and the settings breathe so much more and it's it just feels so much lighter and fresher and even though they're sometimes dealing with tragic things it's just you know they they just feel more alive to me than what I feel in the Troll Gardens and I don't know if Willow Katha was trying to find her voice or what she's emulating people I know somewhere I when I was researching this i I read about Mencken's comments on Willa Catherine, and he was saying that she was early on just like a Wharton uh, cop, you know, copying Wharton. And I can see a bit of that. I haven't read all of Edith Wharton or that much, really. But I, I mean, I can see the criticism there when you read the Troll Gardens is, you know, some of the themes overlap. But when she gets into Old Pioneers, oh, she's really speaking her own voice, you can tell. So um, I like Willa Cather. I I really do. And I'm I'm coming to like her. And I I think, you know, if this goes well, the Plains Trilogy, you know, I'll just jump into her later novels, which is the other volume of of Cather's I I, I have. Um, So, oh, the the bumper I'm choosing for this series is a small selection from the Prize Song from the Meistersinger von Nuremberg. Um, Usually I try to pick American music for, for bumpers. In this case, though, Willow Cather writes so much about opera. So many of her characters are opera lovers. And we have a whole actually novel, The Song of the Lark, about an opera singer. Yeah, maybe I should have picked a female aria, something from like the the Singlinda piece from The Valkyrie. Um, I don't know. But I think when I chose this, I just had read in one of the stories uh, a mention of the Meistersinger. So. so I picked it. I, I, I threw that in there. So maybe I'll have more to say about like Cather's attitude towards, towards music, but it is a European piece of music, of course. But, you know, I, I think, I think that's fine. I don't always have to be so American chauvinistic, chauvinistically American or a culture chauvinist. I don't know what you'd call me. You know, I, I live so much of my life abroad, but, you know, I, and I have so much criticism of Americans history and political systems and, and, you know, on and on. If, about the way America's going but somehow the culture always pulls me back in.
1: Anyway, that's enough
0: babbling about uh, about my my own personal choices. Let's let's jump in and talk about Willa Cather a little bit. Um so Willa Cather was born in 1873 in Virginia. When she was still a a girl in 1877, the family moves to Nebraska. And from very early on she was a very very heavy reader and this is this is copying a lot of her characters like this kind of prairie women who are very well read, very well educated, very much, very worldly. Th- these are, this is her character, at least as I'm only read the three book works so far and only part of Song of the Lark. But you see again and again, this woman, the, the, the woman who grows up in the prairie and, you know, learns early on to take care of herself It's very worldly. You get the sense that that's, that's drawn from her own experience um so that's where she lived she eventually went to university in lincoln lincoln nebraska so she she went to to university close to home that's she started going there in 18 1890 when she was 17 years old and that's when she starts publishing stories it's in 1895 that she first saw an opera in chicago so it's really not until her adulthood that she starts to interact with the city a lot more and that's that's a theme you see as early on as as the troll garden characters who Maybe have a have have a complex relationship with the city, and there's always kind of this urban-rural anxiety or, or division. And it, I wonder if Katha started thinking about that when she went to to see went to Chicago in 1895 and saw opera, um, and that's really when she begins her literary career too. She had been publishing stories and, and, and various writing prior to that while she was in college, but her her literary career really takes off after 1895 uh, in Chicago, and she writes. Sporadically, different stories, and it's in nineteen oh five that she writes her first, you know, major publication, which is *The Troll Gardens*. The *Troll Gardens*, as I said before, are simply seven short stories they are not really connected. They're not, I mean, theme. There's common themes here too, but um, you know, I don't even. I have thought long and hard about the meaning of of the title *Troll Garden*. Now, the image I have, of course, is a is a well manicured garden, right, with all these certain kind of troll houses and faces on rocks and and moss, you know manipulation on moss and things like that or maybe even those little troll gnome creatures or things you know that's that was the image and i i didn't know what it had to do with the story and finally i just gave up and i i just did some uh searching google books to see what i could find from what scholars were saying about this um and this is from a an introduction to the troll garden and um, I don't have the editor's name here But anyways Here's what the author says The Troll Garden is not simply a collection of stories All having something to do with art and artists There is an overall design and meaning And a careful arrangement of the tales To support the themes woven into the fabric of the text The two epigraphs provide a clue to Cather's meaning And need to be looked at carefully The quotation from Kingsley is taken from the Roman and the Teuton, And as part of a parable he tells to introduce a discussion of the invasion of Rome by the barbarians The forest people who represent the barbarians Are attracted to the tol- Troll Garden rome covet it and finally overrun it only to discover afterwards that they destroyed the marvels that they sought so then that's all google books gives me doesn't give me the whole quote anyways but you get the idea here right art is certainly part of it and that's true all these characters are artists or musicians or they're artistic and musical characters in all these stories um but I think here, I, for, I almost want to take this, this meaning of, of perhaps the city is the troll garden or a lot, a lot of these stories you have someone entering into an environment where they're not entirely comfortable or, or encountering that, that world. Sometimes it's, it's more in an abstract sense. Like there's a story here called the sculptor's funeral in which, uh, an artist makes his name he's from a small town but he makes his name he becomes very famous like world famous artist but when he dies and his body's returned to his hometown for its funeral like the people just remember him as the as as he was as a boy and he never really of outlives that that reputation or you have another story called um uh, what's it called death in the desert which is all about a a man who really you know he has a famous musical brother and everyone who knows about his relationship to him just sees just talks about the brother. He really can't find his independence from that. So he's he's kind of engaging this world of art through his through his brother's reputation, but it's something he can't escape. And it's really not something he's of, right? He's not the artistic minded person, but he can't escape it, right? And it's it's kind of the dilemma of having a famous famous relative. I'm sure many people have have undergone that 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 conflict, right? but you also have a lot of characters who kind of pine for or, or desire a life of art and can't be a part of it, right? And they, so there are a lot of barbarians at the gates in all these stories. In fact, speaking of that, let's just jump into these tales and I'll talk about them as best I can. And I'm sure there's thousands of people, maybe millions of people who can talk about these stories with more authority than me. I'm just a guy um, struggling my way through. Uh, these stories. But the first one, um, we see this theme of kind of the barbarians at the gate. And and that story is called Flavia and her artists. So we have two characters here. We have Flavia, the titular character, uh, and she's a very bougie, not not yet middle-aged, uh, I guess I wouldn't call her a young woman either, just a woman. Uh, she's in her 30s or so. Um, she lives in somewhere in New York and She's visited by her friend Imogen, and Imogen is our main kind of narrator of the story. I guess there's no, it's not narrated by Imogen, but it's, she's our main point of view. And so she's going to visit this friend uh, Flavia, and Flavia likes to collect artists, and she's got money, she's got some fame. Basically, she's, well, I wouldn't say fame. She, she's a socialite, right? And she's able to, because of her, her status and money, she's able to collect artists. And so she has these parties and she she has the artists come on and live with her and hang out with her. And Imogen is kind of being recruited into this group. and She's like an old friend. Now, she's very talented and intelligent too. She's working on her PhD, I think, in philology, like the study of language. So she is a pretty sophisticated person, but you know, she's kind of second tier to the artists. In fact, at one point, I think it's, we're, we're told that they, if you ever hear, you know, they are late for dinner or they, uh, you know, they like to do this. It's referring to the artists, right? A set group of people that, that Flavia um, has hanging around with her. So I really see two things going on with this story. One is disillusionment over Flavia, first by Imogen and and then we learn like these artists all don't really respect her that much either and that's the theme and then the other theme would be Flavia herself being trying to work her way into an artistic life but never being quite smart enough never being talented enough and and being frustrated in her efforts right so i think if we're taking this metaphor of the enemy at the gates or the barbarians at the gates it's flavia actually who is the barbarian at the gate you you almost want to think first it's imogen because she's coming from the countryside that she's the one kind of bringing this um kind of less cultured mind or or lifestyle to you know certainly not mind i guess because she she is an intellectual but you know she's coming from the smaller town to to New York, that she's the barbarian, but no, it's actually Flavia. She's the barbarous one, and she's but she's part of the bourgeoisie, so she can sort of fake it, and she can get some attention because of her money. Now the plot basically goes like this: she Imogen arrives, and then there's a dinner party, and we meet all the artists, and they have their their typical conversations, and and one source of conversation that often comes up is is why does Flavia's husband like put up with her like there's a lot of gossiping now not in front of Flavia directly but there's a lot of gossiping about how kind of high-strung Flavia is how overblown she is how kind of pretentious she is and why does her husband put up with with her so we, we get a sense pretty early on from various characters that Flavia is not that well respected by the artists she keeps around her, her husband's name is Arthur, by the way, or Hamilton, he you refer. Now, there's a bunch of the artists. Most of them aren't important. There's like a musician. There's a historian. There's a chemist. There's another philologist. Imogen is one philologist, but there's another there. There's, um, well, Jemima Broadwood is, is kind of the closest to Flavia, and she's an actress, and she's like the second cousin of Flavia, and she's the one who most often talks to Imogen about, about Flavia. So they have this dinner party, and then there's a lot of gossip. And the next day, you know, they continue chatting. And Now, now the main artist that's most important here is a guy named uh, Emile Roux, who is a French writer. And he's like the most famous person here. And sometime after this initial meeting, Imogen is still hanging out with Flavia. The artists are reading this newspaper article, which is basically, was by Roux. Uh, Emil Roux who makes fun of Imogen essentially just tr- treats makes fun of like the American women essentially but uses Flavia as the example of the American woman everyone knows that he's clearly making fun of Flavia I mean it's like the conversations are directly from conversations they witness so it's obviously a, a pun on her and Arthur kind of overhears this and they start kind of making fun of Flavia and Arthur stands up for his wife and he's such a meek character throughout the story and everyone Kind of talks about him that way but then he he stands up and he accuses not just rue but basically of all these artists of being how do i say it just not really being worth all their pompacity well here's what he says eventually he says as for mr rue his very profession places him in that class of men whose society has never been able to accept unconditionally because it has never been able to assume that they had any ordered notions of taste. He and his ilk remain with the Mountbanks and snake charmers, people indispensable to our civilization, but wholly unreclaimed by it. People whom we receive, but whose invitations we don't accept. End quote. Now, if we go back to the the metaphor of the barbarians at the gate, here it's actually Arthur Hamilton saying that they are that all of these artists are kind of the barbarians. Um, so how you read it, I guess, depends on your own point of view and values on, on this, on this encounter between these different worlds. But the real twist at the end of the story is Arthur finally stands up for, for Flavia from all these people who don't seem to like her very much. And and then Flavia is embarrassed by this. Eventually, she, she she hears about this and she sees Arthur's outburst, not for what it is, um, but. But as a disruption to this nice life she's been trying to build up for herself, and it's it, you know it's kind of sad to see in the end that Flavia can't even see the value of her of her husband's courage and boldness in in essentially talking back to these artists because she invests so much of her social capital in keeping up this facade of her being a a socialite and keeping these famous artists around, and I, I think that's a common theme in these Troll Garden stories is like art. You know the people who understand art and culture and the people who don't and the people who who fake to understand it right like they the people who who have these books on their shelves you know that they have never read i I guess i'm a little bit guilty of that i i I bought all these library of america books i haven't read all of them I, i have read most though you know but there are those people who kind of put on the facade of being cultured but they don't really have the bona fides and that's certainly a major theme of of Flavia and her artist. So that's my thoughts on that story. It, it's, it's not bad. Uh, it's actually probably my favorite of, of the stories here. Well, I don't know about that if it's my favorite. You know, It's actually weird. The, when I talk about these things, the, you know, they, they, I remember them a little bit more fondly. Anyways, I'll try to be a little bit quicker for the remaining six stories or I'll, I'll never get done here. Uh, the next one included in the Troll Garden is called The Sculptor's Funeral. Um, and basically, this is a story about the lack of recognition a man has in his parochial small town background. So the sculptor is world famous, you know, so he's from this small Kansas town and he goes out and becomes a famous artist and then he dies. Right. And he comes back and, you know, people know he's become famous, but they only remember him as he was. So we have a little bit of social mobility here and we, we see a character who's moved up. Now the characters who are most touched and affected by the death of, this, this sculptor it is like some of his, his friends from from school, one of whom becomes a lawyer. Now, he doesn't get out of the small town. He remains in the small town, and he, he becomes a small town lawyer. Anyways, let me give you the name. So it's, it's Merrick is the sculptor. Uh, and then we have all these townspeople. Um, and then we have Jim Laird is this b- lawyer. Right? Who knew him And there's other minor characters But essentially what happens is Everyone just talks about Merrick's youth And their Kind of his rambunctiousness And we see this kind of We have this scene where the mother comes out for instance And is like overacting with her With her grief But it's actually Laird Who's like the most affected by this And the most emotionally challenged by it And Laird, you get the sense, does feel a little bit bad that he never got to break free of it. But he's mostly touched by how the people in this community talk about his, his friend. And anyways, Laird never actually goes to the funeral. He gets drunk before the, f- the night before the funeral and never even shows up the next day. But before the day before, when he's with these other townspeople talking about Merrick, he gives this speech. And the speech is exposing kind of the parochial nature of the small town. And praising Merrick for what he tried to do, and even kind of reject, like, w- accusing his own self of his own failures to not do what Merrick did. Because you really see that Laird feels that he got sucked back into the small town. And although he became educated and kind of a prominent member of it, he never got to break free. And it, it's worth reading this. Brother Elder says Harv was too free with the old man's money, fell short in filial consideration. Maybe. Well, we can all remember the very tone in which Brother Elder swore his own father was a liar in the country court. And we all know that the old man came out of that partnership with his son as bare as a sheathed lamb. But maybe I'm getting personal, and I better be diving ahead at what I want to say. Harvey Merrick and I went to school together back east. We were dead earnest. We wanted all of you to be proud of us someday. We meant to be great men. Even I, and I haven't lost my sense of humor, gentlemen, I meant to be a great man. I came back here to practice, and I found you didn't want the least... You didn't want in the least of me to be a great man. You wanted me to be a shrewd lawyer. Oh, yes. Our veteran here wanted me to get an increase in his pension because he had dyspepsia. Welps wanted a new country survey that would put the widow of Wilson's little bottom farm in the south line. Elder wanted me to lend at 5% a month, and I got collected. Old Stark here wanted to widow, old woman up in Vermont into investing in their annuities in real estate mortgages. that are not worth the paper they're written on. Oh, you need to be hard enough. And you'll go on needing me, and that's why I'm not afraid to plug the truth home once. Well, I came back here and became the damnedest shyster you wanted me to be. You pretend to have some sort of respect for me, and yet you stand up and throw mud at Harvey Merrick, whose soul you couldn't dirty and by hands you couldn't tire. Oh, you're a discriminating lot of Christians. There have been times within the sight of Harvey's name in some Eastern paper has made me hang my head like a whipped dog. It goes on and on. It doesn't quite end there, but... it comes at the end of the story and all this frustration that Laird has over the way Merrick's being remembered in this town um, comes out. And it it ends up being a story really about the failure of this character to to break free and and becoming what the society wants out of educated people. And the whole kind of rural town then becomes remembered or kind of presented here by Cather as these, again, these barbarians who can't understand real art. Very much like maybe Flavia. Now, Flavia is different, though, because Flavia res- under- respect, understands enough about art to respect it and be in awe of it. You know, these people just see it as some kind of a waste of time and waste of energy. And so the only thing they could talk about him, this, this Merrick, is, you know, the things he did as a kid, you know. You know, it's a thing. All, all kids do these kinds of things. But the problem is, if you're only remembered as a kid who pooped in his pants in fifth grade... You know, that's, it's kind of depressing and that's how Laird fears about it, especially when he's the one who never quite got away. So, um, next, uh, we have the garden lodge. The garden lodge is a, a nice little story. Uh, we have a very much a Willa of Cather character, a character we're going to meet again and again as we read Cather's novels. And that's this no nonsense rule woman who's, who's kind of got the responsibility for running a farm thrust on her shoulders. She's very talented though. She's an she's an artist in her own right, but she basically has been burdened with responsibilities. Right? And so she becomes very much like the manager type. And we're we're the in Old Pioneers, we have a character kind of like this, Alexandra, who through the vicissitudes of life becomes the has to be be the hard nosed, hard-headed manager of a farm. And I think a theme here to remember is I, I think Catherine away is attacking the agrarian ideal maybe not directly um but attacking this idea that running a farm is 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 kind of a mystical experience where we connect to nature i mean steinbeck did this in some of his his writings you know it's not that you know running a farm in the 20th century is a business like any other and to run it you have to be hard you have to be crude you have to be clever you have to know law you have to know business and that's who caroline the main character here is now the plot here is that this man, Raymond Esquire, Esquire, I'm not sure how it's pronounced, but he's an opera singer and he comes and stays at the farm for a while. And Caroline then gets kind of close to him. They don't really have an affair, although there seems to be some attraction here. She, she's married to the, she's married, Car- Caroline's married to this man, Howard Noble, and he's older and a widower. And actually, Caroline basically runs the farm. So Howard's a, another example, a bit like Arthur Hamilton and being the, from Flavia and the artists. So being a character who, a man who is a, is a bit meek. Um, There's an opera singer though is staying with her and she loves the music cause she has this musical, this love of music but it's something she can't enjoy because she's so focused on the business of the farm. So she would often go off with him to this garden lodge and hear these arias that he would sing, including arias from from Wagner. And then he just, he leaves, right? So it's just a memory she has. And then the husband, not really fully aware of how much the Garden Lodge means to her in an emotional sense at this point in her life, asks, you know, can we just tear down the Garden Lodge and build something else there? And at first, this leads her to really reflect on her experience with this young artist. And then eventually she goes into the See the Garden Lodge and sings to herself one last aria and then finally agrees to, yeah, it makes sense to tear down the Garden Lodge and do something else with the space. It's a good business choice. And she just kind of laughs at the end that, you know, how silly she was to be sentimental about this. And it's kind of tragic because you realize that she does really want to keep this lodge. But her image as the no-nonsense businesswoman, the the manager of the farm, has to win out and it, it has to be victorious. and And so the Garden Lodge has to... Has to die, has to be broken down, and those memories uh, might fade along with with it. We hope not. Music, music has a lot of power to to stay in our hearts. But um, that's the story of the Garden Lodge. And again, we have this tension between like those who understand art and those who don't. Here, it's it's I guess Carolyn's husband, or maybe the community around her that can't ever really appreciate what the lodge and what her her short experiences with this musician meant to her. Um, so it's kind of a sweet story if if a little tragic death in the desert it's it's fairly long i think flavian her is longer but De- death in the desert might be the second longest in these these tales our, our main character is a man named everett hillgard and he's got a brother named what was his name again? ad adrenance 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 i guess adherence i'm not sure how to pronounce this, this name actually Um, and he is a famous musician and there's actually a song he, he wrote that's like on everyone's lips. So part of the problem with Everett's life is everywhere he goes, he hears this song, which he knows is his brother's song and his brother's always going to be more famous than him. And Everett's not a really musical type. And so he goes, but he goes through life and he goes through these different experiences, always having to talk about his brother and always living kind of. Having other people talk about his brother and it's just really about a a man who struggles with his own identity and his own kind of individuality in the face of such a notorious and famous brother so there's a passage about halfway through the story that reflects on these things um, in the afternoon, he was usually in his post of duty. Destiny, he reflected, seemed to have very positive notions about the sort of parts we are fitted to play. The scene changes and the compensations varies, but in the end, we are usually finding that we have played the same class of business from first to last. Everett has been the stopgeth all his life. He remembered going through the looking glass labyrinth when he was a boy and trying gallery after gallery only at every turn to bump his nose against his own face, which indeed was not his own, but his brother's no matter what mission east or west or land by sea he was sure to find himself employed in his brother's business on one of the tributary lies which helped to swell the shining current of adorance hill guard it was not the first time that his duty had been to comfort as best he could out of the broken things his brother's imperious speed had cast aside and forgotten and that's the theme of the story um i guess the details don't matter that, that much but it's it's pretty good um in the next story, The Marriage of Phaedra. Now, The Marriage of Phaedra is actually a, a painting. So it's it's not a it's not talking about any character Phaedra's not a character, it's just a, a painting and there's a basically the, the plot revolves around this guy Hugh Truffener who an artist who dies and he leaves behind his a great unfinished picture, a masterpiece the marriage of Phaedra. So it's unfinished, right? And so really the question of the story is what is the fate of, of this? And there's basically two sides to this story. The one is like the loyal servant. The loyal servants kind of wants to respect the last wishes of, of this artist, which seems to be to keep this from being sold, right? And then we have the ex-wife. And we do have a failed marriage at the heart of this, a marriage that's based, and I'll get to this in a bit, is the this marriage between the artist and the and his wife. But the wife just kind of wants to profit from her husband's estate after he dies, and part of it means he, she wants to sell the Marriage of Phaedra. And so there's there's almost like a real estate tension over over who has a right to do this. Do this like the legal right goes to the estate, but the servant seems to uphold like a moral right to lay claim to this painting and protect it from from the people and and if we again we want to go back to the theme of kind of the barbarians at the gate and the 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 artistic kind of purity being disrupted by kind of popular ideas or values you know it's the kind of the commercialization of art is is what's being discussed here and whether art should be commercialized you know in a sense it almost has to be right artists have to make a living but at the same time you know you can't really put a price tag on art and you can't put a price tag on masterpieces. And that's, but the person who stands up for that view is someone who doesn't really appreciate art, right? The, the, he's just doing it of the loyalty. He's just doing it because he's a servant and he wants to follow his master's orders after, after he died. Um, so he actually at one point steals this painting and it gets, eventually it's returned. And, and it's assumed that the marriage of Phaedra will be sold at some point. So that's what's going on here. But we also then have this tension in the marriage in which it seems the marriage is also based on on an artist with someone who doesn't understand it, right? And I guess we we can ask the question of can an artist ever find, ever be with someone who can fully understand his work, right? I, I'm sure there's historical examples of it, but, you know, Wagner's case is such a telling example of this, right? So Wagner's first marriage uh, to what was her I forget her last name initially, but Minna was her, her first name. She was an actress, right? And she was very content with Wagner being basically Kapellmeister in Dresden. It's a good career, right? It's a good job. It's like you know, he's essentially a tenured professor, right? But that was, I guess, artistically limiting to him. And he got involved in revolutionary activities. Wagner, I mean, and eventually he had to flee and go on the run. And he had all these affairs, and so he was kind of this wild heart kind of guy and eventually that marriage fails right it, it can't hold because of such different dreams and then he, of course he ends up marrying um cosima elites and that seems to be a marriage much more based on on kind of mutual admiration and respect of, for the for the art so anyway so we got a little bit of a we got a little quote here on this um the marriage was made, this is actually a character speaking, the marriage was made on a basis of a mutual misunderstanding. Allen, in the nature of the case, believed that she was doing something quite of the ordinary in accepting him, and expected concessions, which apparently it never occurred to him to make. After his marriage, he relapsed in his old habit of incessant work, broken by violent and often brutal relaxations. He insulted her friends and foisted his own upon her, many of well, many of them well calculated to avoid to arouse aversion in a well-bred girl. He had Galini constantly in his house, a homeless vagabond whose conversion was impossible. I don't say mind you that he had not grievances on his side. He had probably overrated the girl's possibilities and he let her see that he was disappointed in her. Only a large and generous nature could have borne with him and Ellen's is not that. She could not at all understand that odious stream of plebeian pride which plumes itself upon not having risen above its sources. Yeah. a lot of tragedy in these stories people who just really can't can't connect um next we have uh, a wagner matinee this is i believe the shortest of the stories in the in the troll garden it's it's basically this is told in first person so the narrator meets up with this woman mrs i want to make sure i get the names i didn't write them all down uh yeah. Mrs. Springer. And now so the character, the narrator goes to like to the train station to pick up this Mrs. Springer who came from like the countryside. She, now she was a city girl who went to the countryside to live her life. And she was like back in the city. She was an artist. And so she had this kind of artistic life. But back in the in the countryside, she had to become the no nonsense uh, manager of a farm. Right. So she had to just like the other character, the 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 character in the, the Garden Lodge. She had to turn her back on her her kind of artistic life. And she now the narrator, who's actually a man, um sorry if I said she was a woman. I mean yeah. the narrator's a man, but um the, the narrator is trying to think, well, what should I do with her? You know, what should I do to entertain her? And he, he gets the idea of taking her to a a Wagner matinee, like a, basically a concert of Wagner pieces. And it's not like an opera. She t- t- takes her to a basically a concert of different pieces. So they play a few arias. I guess Wagner wouldn't want to call them arias. He would, you know, he hated that concept. But there are songs, I guess, in a few of his works. In fact, the Prize song from the Meister Singers is a song. But you know, Wagner doesn't have as an aria, right? He works the song into the plot. So whenever Wagner has a song, it's because there should be a song in the story, right? It's not that... People are just singing about how happy they are in the morning or something. Like in some of those Mozart operas. What else do we have? There's like some pieces from The Ring, pieces from The Flying Dutchman. So it's just a bit like a concert um, performance. And she's very moved by this. At first, he's very bothered because she doesn't seem to like it. And she gets more and more enthralled in the music. And it brings back all these memories of the life she's lost. And then her last words at the end of the story are basically, I don't want to go back. And she she despairs at the idea of ever going back to, I think it's like Nebraska or, you know, some place in the prairie. And here's the last lines of the story, which are all about, like she's looking out and and the narrator can see kind of reflected in her eyes this unhappy future for living out the rest of her life, you know, in this prairie land, never again having this connection to this artistic urban life that she once enjoyed quote for her just outside the door of the concert hall lay the black pond with the kettle trod bluffs the tall unpainted house with the window curled boards naked as a tower the crooked backed ash seedlings where the dishcloths hung to dry the gaunt molting turkeys picking up refuge about the kitchen door end quote now i'm someone who kind of wants the other way around i've lived in cities for the last 20 years of my life um pretty much half my life i come from not I'm not from a rural area, but I'm from a small town and and I kind of want to spend as much of the end of my life as possible in, in rural areas or in small towns. I don't like cities, so it's kind of the inverse of how I feel, but I kind of understand this, this longing for, you know, if, if I ever am faced with the reality that I may never leave the city, I mean, I may feel like this character feels. Um, and this gets us into Paul's case, which, I don't know, I think it's the hardest story to really talk about. Um, Paul's case, is study in temperament. So we have a problematic child. Uh, a lot's been written on Paul's case, and I did some searching online, and there's, there's theories or ideas that Paul's a homosexual, and that this is actually a, a kind of part of a genre of stories of like the the suicide homosexual, right? So this homosexual can't live in this world. He can't live. He can't lie to himself, but he can't really come out because this is, you know, the early 20th century. So the, the result becomes suicide. And I don't know. I, I didn't see it when I read it. It's something that kind of surprised me when I came back. But certainly this is a character who is out of pace and his suicide's not unsurprising. So basically, I mean, the story is called The Study and Temperament. So it's about the inability of this t- particular type of character to um, endure. And what he is is he's fundamentally the artistic type. And that's why he can't really fit into the world around him. As we, When we meet Paul, he's basically getting in trouble in his high school with his, with his teachers and the principal and they don't, they don't like what he's doing. He's suspended for, for being basically oppositional defiant disorder. Uh, in my Philip K. Dick podcast, I think it's in the series on Martian Time Slip, um, which may not be up uh, when this is up, but uh, I do talk about you know this the diagnosis of oppositional defiant disorder and ADHD to children who are essentially just anti-authoritarians, right? And there's an article I I cite or I quote in that episode where I talk about this, you know this idea that maybe we're just medicating people who aren't really meant to have disorders, mental disorders or personality disorders, but they're essentially just anti authoritarians who get diagnosed and then get drugged. And maybe we're actually drugging some of our most creative and free thinking people. Right. And they, of course, they don't drug Paul, but they do discipline him. Right. For being a defiant, um, person. Um, He eventually takes, like, work at kind of a music hall. It's called Carnegie Hall. I don't know if that's a kind of a nickname for the place, but he ends up working there, and he really starts to like music. He becomes very much part of that social scene, even though he's like an usher. uh, He gets gets to hear music every day, and he gets to hang around with artists and at least be near artists and be around people who appreciate art. And this is always conflicted with, like, the life he has back at home, which is much more conventional. His home is very... Kind of boring. He doesn't like the people around him. He doesn't think much of them. Um, He, they're like, I guess father wants him to emulate uh, like a guy who's like a manager for like like a steel mill or something, like an iron company. And, you know, he's got all the kids. I mean, that's the ideal for his father. So a lot of this is about like the father having certain dreams for the child and the, the young. And he's not a child anymore. He's actually a young adult, pretty much. He's, he's, he's in high school. He's ready to start thinking for himself about what he wants out of his life, but he can't escape his, the pressures of his, what his parents want and what his parents want for him or his father wants for him. It's a very conventional life. And so the ideal, it's almost preposterous, the ideal that's lifted up, but maybe that's just Catherine making the point. You know, it's really like a manager in a small steel mill it is the ideal world life for that his father has dreamed up for his son. So eventually he just uh, steals a bunch of money and and from some work job he has, um, from some employer, he steals quite a lot, like $1,000. So, you know, given the inflation rate, that's like stealing fifteen twenty thousand dollars $20,000, I think. So he takes that money, he, he steals it and he goes to New York and he starts to live a life there and he lives kind of a a life of a bit of a dandy really much using his money to be part of the social life, the social scene, but he doesn't, it his he goes through the money so quickly and he's basically left with, with, with very little. He also finds out that like people are after him because his, you know, the money he stole, people figured it out that he did it and they're after him. And so then he eventually, he actually had a gun and he chooses not, to kill himself, he he chooses to jump in front of a train. I don't know if that's more romantic or something, but uh, he just simply knows he can't face life back in his hometown. It's not the small town; it's Pittsburgh. It's just it's it's kind of the, the regional city. It's too 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 small for him in his in his mind and in his dreams for himself. So it's kind of a really sad story because it's, it's not someone who's ever been able to really live the life he dreamed for himself. It's just, it's just he found very young, at a very young age that's unachievable, that it's something he's never going to reach. He could only taste it. Either taste it vicariously as an usher at the concert hall or for like a week where he blows through all this money in, in just a few days. Um, so that's, that's it. That's, that's the seven stories in the troll garden. Like they are thematically unified. The more I think about it, the more I I agree. There is kind of a thematic unity here and all about art. Um, All about about the people who kind of can be part of that artistic world and then the masses of society that can't be part of it. Now, the, the result of this, I think, is that the countryside that Willow Cather comes from gets portrayed in a very negative light almost constantly here. And that's... I guess what I wasn't expecting when I started reading World Catholic, you know, I always saw her as a Midwest writer, so I would go to her to be, you know, to think about the prairie, to think about Nebraska, to think about the Great Plains and, you know, to have some celebration of it, at least. I mean, maybe not a slavish honoring of it, but, you know, some, it would be the literature of that, of that part of the world, right? And so I read the stories of the Troll Garden, and you end up with, you know, this countryside being looked at by so many of the characters as parochial, backward, vulgar. You know, there are bougie characters who fall in that same category like Flavia, but it's, it's not what I expected. Uh, but when you read Old Pioneers, you get a very, very different feeling. It's, it's, those are stories of the prairie. They're not always a juxtaposition um, between two things. So yeah, a lot of juxtapositions in this this tale, a lot of themes about art and music and 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 kind of the language of art and how art can be something that can be appreciated and and for some people it can't and and what that does for interpersonal relationships, whether it's your wife or your brother or a childhood friend. So that's it. That's my thoughts on on the Troll Garden. Um, really worth looking at, I think. Uh, Although, I don't know if I'll come back and read them again. I imagine next time, if I do pick up this volume again in a few years, I'll probably jump straight to Old Pioneers because I like it so much more, but um, who knows? Anyways, well, uh, that's it for now. I will be back shortly with my thoughts on Old Pioneers. I'll actually do two episodes on Old Pioneers. Um, Just to be all honest with you, you, uh, the Troll Gardens was 131 pages. And The Pioneers takes us up to page two, 290. So it's a bit hard to divide these 300 pages into three episodes. But, you know, I just do one for The Troll Gardens, then I'll do Old Pioneers over two two episodes. Uh, so that's what you get to look forward to. So if you're reading along with me, do read uh, Old Pioneers. Um, if you've read The Troll Garden, and, you know, I I got most of it wrong probably, and I don't, probably don't know what I'm talking about. And I, You know, perhaps I totally misunderstand interpret these tales please tell me how please send me an email at hundredpagescast at gmail.com or just post uh, your comments below i would love to hear what you have to think about these stories and what you think of willow cather what are your experiences reading willow cather um so please share your thoughts about it if you have any recommendations for future library of, Am- library of america volumes to read um in the future let me know those as well um, but that'll be it for now. Um, thanks for always. Thanks as always for listening. I really appreciate it. I'll see you next time with my first, the first part of my comments on oh, "O Pioneers" by Willa Cameron <laughs>